All right, I'm gonna ask that you guys stand with me while we read God's Word this morning. Pretty interesting, uh, this morning we're gonna be in Acts chapter two talking about the day of Pentecost. And it wasn't until a few weeks ago that I actually realized it timed perfectly because this actually is on the church calendar, the day of Pentecost. So it actually prepare for like the mighty rushing wind this morning, right? Uh, but I want to read this passage to us, and, um, and then we're just going to pray and ask Jesus to use this time this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue, language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, just for this divine occurrence, God, that um, this day that commemorates the day of Pentecost, that we actually get to study this passage. And I'm praying, Jesus, that you'd be at work in this church and in each one of us, God, that you'd open up our hearts to hear from you this morning, God, in a passage that has in some ways wreaked a lot of havoc in the church because churches have divided over it. We pray, Jesus, that this morning you, your spirit would be at work unifying and building your church up this morning, Jesus, and giving us eyes to see and understanding the ability to um, listen and hear what it is you're saying, Jesus, and then also figure out how this applies to each of us. So Jesus, we give you this time and we pray your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Awesome. Well, good morning, everybody. Anybody love the weather? It's just amazing, right? Welcome to North Idaho. Um, like I said, we're, we're in a passage this morning that historically has divided a lot of people in the church. And today, I want to work through this passage and highlight a handful of things that we can learn about the Spirit of God. Uh, from within this passage, but this passage is a, a bit of a doozy, like literally whole denominations have been created based on how you interpret this passage. Churches have divided over this passage for decades, and as I was preparing uh, for this, the, this sermon this morning, I was realizing that um, being tongues are such a big part of this passage, uh, there's some of you that for you, I'll be overemphasizing tongues this morning, <laughs> and you won't be happy because of that. And then there'll be some of you this morning that will think that I'm underemphasizing tongues this morning, 
and you won't be happy either, and so my goal today is to not please anybody, right? And I'm super good at that. So that's exactly the, the, the point this morning. But I want to look at Acts 2, 1 through 13. Uh, Acts 2, verse 1. It's, it starts out like this. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. And I'm going to camp out here for a little while because I think it's easy for us to read through this text and try to get what we want out of it without understanding some of the historical value of what's being spoken in this passage. We just jump to the things that get highlighted to us, the things we've always heard, the things that we've always heard churches even divide over or make really big deals out of, specifically tongues, which is an interesting one in this passage because it's really not the main point of this passage. But he starts out, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrives. So to stop there for a second, uh, what is Pentecost? Uh, Pentecost was a feast. There were seven feasts that were part of the Jewish calendars. Three of these seven feasts, however, required this pilgrimage or this traveling back to Jerusalem in order to partake in them. And so the, this day of Pentecost, Pentecost is one of these feasts where people would come from all over Israel to come to Jerusalem for this massive celebration. Pentecost is actually one of the biggest of the feasts. Um, but Passover, which we know, which we talked about just uh, a month ago or so, 50 days ago, um, is the biggest of them. And we talked through Passover as we were wrapping up the book of Matthew, but Passover corresponds with, with Jesus' death and resurrection. So the historical feast of Passover actually took place during that week of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Um, to give you some context, Jesus is the, the, the Passover lamb, which points back to the Old Testament, right? If you don't know much about the Passover, it goes back to when Israel as a nation was in bondage to Egypt. Um, the, the, this is where the, the definition of redemption actually comes from, like freedom from the bondage to, Israel, to Egypt that the Israelites were in, freedom from the, the, the tyrannical rule of, of Pharaoh. And so Israel is freed from Egypt. And how are they freed? Uh, so Moses is sent, and, and Moses is kind of like this, even this type of foreshadowing of Jesus for us, because what does Jesus do? When, when Jesus comes onto the scene, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, and, and Jesus has victory over temptation in that 40-day period. Jesus accomplishes this victory that Moses actually never had the ability to. Moses never got to see the promised land, but what did Moses do? We, we know that Moses strikes this rock that actually keeps him from partaking in the promised land. And then what did Satan say to Jesus in that 40-day period? He said, tell the rock to turn into bread, is what Satan turns and says to Jesus. And Jesus says no. So in, in some sense, Jesus was a better Moses, right? The, the baptism of Jesus leads to this 40 days of temptation that Jesus undergoes. And we see Moses as this leader of Israel. And sort of this baptism, even with the nation of Israel, as they go through the Red Sea and they spend 40 years in the wilderness under Moses' leadership. And there's these 12 tribes. Jesus has these 12 apostles. And so it's all about fulfillment. And the amazing thing about God's word is if you only take it at face value and you just read it to get what you want out of it, you don't actually get everything that there is to to, to get to consume from the Word of God. 
because all of it was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And when you start to read both hand in hand, you start to see the puzzle pieces come together. Nothing has caused my heart to leap more than once I realized that in my journey with Jesus. When I started to make these connections. And so there's these 12 tribes. Jesus has these 12 apostles. Um, Jesus is the fulfillment of this Passover. Like Passover, it pointed ahead to Jesus. In the Old Testament, you see these 10 plagues that come with Moses bringing uh, his leadership to the Israelites in Egypt. And the last of these 10 plagues is this Passover, right? This plague was brought upon the firstborn. Why was the plague brought upon the firstborn? Because the firstborn actually represented hope for the families. The firstborn was the one who actually received the inheritance. All hope was actually in the firstborn child. And so what God said was, take this lamb, cut it, kill it, the whole lamb. Don't break any bones in the lamb, which is what God told them. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself didn't have any broken bones either. He was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb. And so the whole lamb was killed, and if you spread the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, over your home, then the angel of death would then pass over your home, like you'd be passed over, your sins would be passed over, you'd be saved, essentially. And John the Baptist says about Jesus, behold, he says, the lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world, like that was Jesus's whole point. And so the Passover was fulfilled by Jesus, and now we have this Feast of Pentecost, the Shavuot, as it's called in Hebrew. Pentecost was probably, um, maybe, arguably, the more attended feast even over uh, Passover because Pentecost took place in June. So weather-wise, as they're traveling to Jerusalem, they're probably more apt to make the pilgrimage when the weather's a little bit uh, more nice. So Pentecost, this word actually means the 50th. Why is it called Pentecost? It happens 50 days after the Passover. Uh, the, uh, so the, this Pentecost, it's also called the Feast of Weeks because the Lord ordained it to happen seven weeks plus a day after Passover is when Pentecost would happen. So we're 50 days out from what we know as Easter, right? We're 50 days out from Passover today. So it's also called the, the Feast of Harvest or the, the First Fruits, as some of you have probably heard before. And this is really important because spiritually speaking, as we study through the book of Acts over the next couple weeks, this harvest is going to be taking place in this passage. I mean, next week we're going to talk about 3,000 souls in one instance that come to faith in Jesus Christ. So this feast of harvest is a feast of first fruits. That's Pentecost. So for a lot of people in in this metropolitan city of Jerusalem where agriculture was actually like vital to their economy, it was vital to their livelihood, it was this feast that celebrated the goodness of God, what he had provided for them. And so they would say, the harvest has come, so we're going to take the first fruits of the harvest, what God's given us, and we're going to present them as an offering to God. Like we're going to make a declaration with the first fruits of our harvest. That, that, that this has actually been given to us by him. So we're going to give back to him first. So in Leviticus 23, it tells us what's supposed to take place. It says, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. 
Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places, from your homes, two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. So this word ephah that's used there. And ephah is equivalent to about 100 cups of flour for you and I. So they had to bring two tenths of an ephah from their house, about 20 cups of flour, to be used to make these two loaves. Like, anybody in the house help me understand what it takes to make a normal loaf of bread that we eat today? From what I understand, it's about two cups. Am I right? What's that? Eight? Ah, oh, you're going to blow my point this morning. Uh, just go with me on this one. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. So the point being, these are some massive loaves of flour, or loaves of bread. And that's this declaration that this is a huge God that has given so much to us. So they, they took these two big loaves and they present them as first fruit offerings of this harvest that was to come. And so you can see this fulfillment in all of this, right? Because next week we're going to see a fulfillment in a huge way as Jesus is the greater Passover, right? Next week we're going to see that the, there's a greater harvest, a harvest of 3,000 souls in one day on the day of Pentecost. And so the statement here in verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. But what's really cool about the original language is that it literally reads when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. Is how it actually re reads. Not arrived, but when it was being fulfilled. And it's being fulfilled here. This is what we're celebrating. Look at verses 1 and 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Here's the first thing that I want to point out about the Holy Spirit as we see in this passage this morning, is that the Holy Spirit is sudden. The Holy Spirit is sudden. And I don't want to read too much into this, but I really don't want to miss it either. We see that the Spirit here suddenly comes. And I think this emphasis on the suddenness of the Spirit is emphasizing and telling us that the Spirit does what the Spirit does. It's really up to Him. They're there, and what are they doing? They're waiting patiently, faithfully. They're waiting prayerfully for this promise that's to come. But the Spirit of God suddenly arrives. And I think it's this sort of demonstration of the fact that he's sovereign. The Spirit of God moves where he wants to move. He moves when he wants to move. Our call is really to walk in obedience, like faithfully, joyfully, prayerfully, right? Sometimes it's just waiting in an upper room for the Holy Spirit to arrive. And that's our call, to wait patiently, to wait joyfully, but all of a sudden, the, the, the Spirit comes, and all of a sudden, there's this explosion that's happened, and, and, and we see this, this sort of explosion that happens here, and I think it's similar in our lives, that there's this explosion that sometimes that happens in us, because one of the questions that I ask when I read this passage, and that many have asked, is, is this normative? Is this normal? Like, should it always happen like this? In fact, what's taking place here? isn't even normative in the book of Acts, to be totally honest with you. What you see happening in Acts chapter 2 doesn't happen again the way it does here ever. 
So it's not even normal in the book of Acts, except if, if we keep in mind what the purpose is that's being demonstrated here on the day of Pentecost, then that is normal. But the act of what's taking place is, is not normal. It's normative when you see the results because the results of this whole thing were actually this harvest that's reaped. And so in one sense, it's sort of normative, right? It's normal. Um, but in another, it's, it's specifically sort of I, this isolated event with this really amazing purpose. And so the day of Pentecost is happening and suddenly the Spirit comes. But in connection with the Spirit, we read that the Spirit came, and then it says this, with a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That's how the Spirit came. With a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And I think this is really significant because it doesn't say that the Spirit came as a rushing wind, does it? It says he comes with a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And I only point that out because I've seen reenactments of this scene, and what do you always see? The wind blows through the room, and the dude's pants are like flapping in the wind, and they don't even wear pants. You know, you're like, what in the world is going on here? Like, I don't, I don't know that it was actually a wind, but it says a sound like a wind, right? Like, if I said that the Spirit comes like the sound of a thousand cattle, you know, there wouldn't be like literally a thousand cattle coming by, right? I, I'm referring to the sound of, the, what the sound a thousand cattle makes. I mean, imagine that in your head. The Spirit came like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And one of the commentaries that I had read this week spent half of a page painting this beautiful picture, again, of this like breeze coming through this room. And I'm thinking like, there's no wind. Like, it says that there's a sound like a wind. However, like, that being said, I don't want to overlook the fact that the, 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 the sudden coming of the Spirit is sort of connected to the sound of the wind because it comes like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Because wind is often used in Scripture to symbolize the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus sort of makes the same statement in regards to the points I made about the sovereignty of God and the fact that the wind blows, the, the Spirit moves as he wishes, right? When Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You also see where the, the breath of God is strongly tied to the, the symbol of wind and the Spirit. John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Man, that's crazy. So you can see the, the, this correlation between breath and wind and the Spirit of God. But in John chapter 20, as we see in Acts, what's it for? It was actually for the, the witness. Like, it was to be a witness. Like, I'm sending you out. Receive the Spirit. And he breathes on them. Like, right from the beginning in the Scriptures, you see the connection between the breath of God and, and then, like, life-giving power that his Spirit brings. In Genesis 2.7, it says that then the Lord God formed the man uh, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
Job, like, brings the Spirit and the breath of God together when he says, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Like, Jesus himself in John chapter 6 declares that it's the Spirit that gives life. Some Hebrew scholars have stretched this a little bit, but I kind of like where they go with it. And they say that when Moses gets called by God to go down and lead his people to freedom, and he asks God, like, whom should I tell them actually sent me? And God says, tell them that I am, I am sent you. Some Hebrew scholars say that I am, this I am word, is actually God saying, tell them sent you. That it's actually the sound of the breath of God. They would say that there was no name here, that it was the breath of God. Like, how cool is it to think that it's possible that literally every time that you and I are taking a breath, we're declaring the name of God? Like, how cool is that to think about? I'm trying to work out right now in my life, and I huff and puff a lot, and I am encouraged by the fact that I'm declaring the name of God a ton right now in my life, you know? Walking up and down stairs, doing a little run, I'm just worshiping the Lord the whole time, right? <laughs> but my point in all this is this, like, is to help us understand, like, why this mighty rushing of the wind coming into this place and that sound like it with the Spirit, like, I think why it occurs here is because in the big grand picture of God from beginning to end, we see that in the same way that God, the Spirit, is often symbolized with what, like wind and with breath, it's actually the same with the presence of God and the symbolism with fire. Like the story of Moses in the burning bush is probably the best example of that. But, but we see that there's not only the sound of wind, but then he goes on to talk about these tongues as of fire. And he's not talking about real fire, like people aren't burning, you know what I mean? But these tongues as a fire that begin to settle on each one of them. And it sort of seems as though this is a fulfillment of what John the Baptist said about the baptism of Jesus when he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to even untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire is what he says. The second thing I want us to see about the Spirit in this passage is this, is that the Holy Spirit at times makes himself known visibly, makes himself known audibly. There's, there's sometimes manifestations, and I know that when I say manifestations, some of you in this room start squirming. You're like, oh my gosh, where's he going with this, right? But what we see here is, is this audible manifestation of the Spirit in the upper room, like a sound of a mighty rushing wind, and this visible sort of manifestation of the Spirit with tongues of fire that are settling on each one of them. Like, how did the Spirit manifest when it came to Jesus? If you look back at Jesus' baptism, what's it say? That the Spirit rested, came upon Jesus, what? Like a dove, is what it says, right? That the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. In the Old Testament, how's this manifestation of God shown? Pillars of clouds, pillars of fire. Like you see several manifestations of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Like Acts chapter 4, the, the building literally shakes. 
Acts chapter 6, the, the face of Stephen was like that of an angel. Acts 16, like the manifestation of the Spirit is in, in an earthquake. And so you see in Scripture like both visible manifestations. You see these felt manifestations of the Spirit. And sometimes we treat God like the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, sort of like hippie God. Like he's the free one, right? <laughs> the Spirit's the free one. He, he's like the, the brother or sister that you just can't control, right? He's the untamed one. And I've grown up in circles, been around circles over the years where the spirit was treated like this. Like, you just can't get him, you know what I mean? He's just like, he's this wild beast, you know, and he freaks everybody out. But here's the deal, is that the spirit only does that which brings glory to God. That's what the Spirit's for. The Holy Spirit won't do anything that is not consistent with God's character because the Holy Spirit is God. But what we do see, uh, we, we do see these different manifestations of this, and, and we see the result of all this. If you look at verse 4, it says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And I really want to emphasize that part this morning, because I've been in churches that have taught classes on how to teach people to speak in tongues. I want to, I want to emphasize that it is the Spirit that gives utterance. It is Him that causes that to happen. The third thing I want to point out about the Spirit with regards to the filling or the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, is, is that the, the filling of the Holy Spirit overflows in like passionate praise. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you, you, are, you are overflowed with like becoming a bold witness and filled with this like amazing praise. And so they've been filled for what reason? Look at the second half of verse 11. Go down a few, a few verses. It says, we hear them telling in our own tongues what? The mighty works of God. What are they proclaiming? What's the Spirit leading them to proclaim? The mighty works of God. Like that was the purpose. The purpose is the declaration of the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of God. So one common mistake when it comes to the day of Pentecost is that we get bogged down talking about tongues. It's just so interesting to me. Like, that's the thing we hyper-fixate on. Like, even though tongues is not the point of this passage, it's like the thing that we get so fixed on, fixated on. What's the point of the day in Pentecost? Verse 11, the declaration of the mighty works of God. Soon after, 3,000 get saved. Like, tongues was just a means that God used. Tongues was not the message, right? It was the means that God used to reach people. One, one commentator I read said that matter is more important than manner, and I love that. And what's the matter here? It's actually, it's the nations hearing about the greatness of God. It's the Holy Spirit's passion it is the praise of the greatness of God. Like God's intention through his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was the declaration of God's like grandeur, of God's glory which actually led to this harvest of souls. Like, that was the purpose. Tongues was a means for that. And what's taking place here was not normal. But, but what is normative in the book of Acts is people coming to Jesus. And it's going to happen a whole lot from here on out. 
people coming to Jesus is literally the demonstration of the filling of the Spirit. Like to be a Spirit-filled individual or a Spirit-filled, have a Spirit-filled ministry, people better be coming to know Jesus through that. Like it's going to be a ministry where Jesus is glorified, where Jesus actually draws people. Please understand this morning, though, that I've got this pen, like Pentecostal dude deep down inside of me, right? And by no means would I ever want to negate the gift of tongues or whether or not it should be used in the church. But I don't think what's being talked about here in Acts 2 is this prescription of the use of that gift for us. I think this is sort of this isolated event with a really specific purpose to fulfill the promise of the Father. Like, we can't get bogged down in the means here. And in Acts chapter 2, God the Spirit, like his Spirit, uses this means. But in Acts chapter 4, what happens? They're filled and Peter just preaches. He doesn't speak in tongues. Peter just preaches. In Acts chapter 11, what's Barnabas do? He, he exhorts. He's filled with the, the Spirit, and he exhorts other people. It, it was all about people coming to Jesus in the name of Jesus, like Jesus being glorified. That was the purpose. And so what you see here is that filling of the Spirit leads to praise, and it leads to boldness. They became a witness. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 5 in connection with the Spirit filling of God. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be what? Filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's the worship, and you're filled, and the worship, when worship enters you and it begins to pour out of you like there's just something about that have you ever been around a spirit-filled person that's always singing and just can't help it like there's something so my my uh we have friends family that um have often functioned like that where everywhere you go they're just like always singing there's something about the presence of god and it's always has them in song and even though this passage in and of itself is not necessarily a passage about tongues, I do want to camp out for a brief, a brief moment and talk about it a little bit because I know there's questions. I, I often get like, where does Anthem stand when it comes to tongues and the gifts of the Spirit? And, you know, that people often want to know, like, what we think. And I'm hesitant to address it too much because I don't want to get bogged down and just talking about tongues here, but I've been in church services myself over the years, gatherings, where tongues was the emphasis of the whole gathering. I've also been in situations in my past around teachers or in church gatherings where I've listened to people talk about tongues as being an utterance of Satan. And so I've seen like both sides of the spectrum in my life. I've seen it all. And so I think I've got this fairly good sense and I've tried to do my own due diligence here to try to figure out where I stand on this subject. But I've been in church services, again, where, where tongues is the witness, or tongues is the emphasis, not the witness, not declaration, not mission, nothing of the sort. It was just all about tongues. And I think they entirely missed the point, actually, because that isn't the point. 
Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So why is the one who prophesies greater than the one who speaks in tongues, according to Paul? Because if you don't have an interpretation, you don't have the building up of the body. And that was Paul's emphasis. And what you have in Acts chapter 2, what you see in like 1 Corinthians 14, is that even though I think there are different types of tongues, they actually were there for the building up of the body. So unless somebody interprets so that the church can be built up, they actually just speak to build up themselves. But tongues are given to build up the church. That's why Paul says, if there's no interpretation, don't speak. Like, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14, 19? He says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul's heart was to build up the body of Christ. Are we open to tongues here at Anthem? Absolutely. Like, wide open. Like, I think the gifts of God are, are the, the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Like, I believe that no gift has ceased because I don't believe we've reached the to the ends of the earth yet, right? So I'm wide open. Like, whatever it is the Spirit wants to do, as long as there's guardrails on things. I mean, Paul spends most of his ministry putting guardrails on how the church is taking these things and just, like, using it for their own glory, but I also say this, is that I, I think the greatest opportunity for the manifestation of, of, of all the gifts, not just tongues, but all the gifts, serving gifts, speaking gifts, that there's something really sweet about watching that happen in community, in smaller groups of people. There's something sweet. Because oftentimes these big, these big group gatherings become about proclamation and worship and prayer. And it doesn't mean that we're not open to however the Spirit wants to lead here, but I think Paul gives some clear direction that there needs to be an interpretation. And so here's the thing, is that if people aren't coming to Jesus, I could care less about tongues. Because I think that's God's heart, is to use what he's given us to proclaim the glory, the faithfulness, the goodness, the grandeur of God. And that may, that may sound super harsh to some, but I want people to come to know Jesus. I want to close with sort of the, the bigger picture here that, of what we have in Acts chapter 2. Um, it's sort of like the, the, the restoration of something that took place at the beginning of God's story. In, in Genesis chapter 11, there's one language on earth, right? And all the people come together and they said, like, let's build this tower. Anybody heard of the Tower of Babel, right? Let's build this tower. And the, building the tower becomes the motivator for them. And so they could make a name for themselves if they could build this tower. And so God saw this as pretty problematic, right? <laughs> because anything that leads to our glory and falls short of his glory, he calls sin. And so God, in his grace, like, brings judgment on them because they're making it all about themselves and he curses it and he says, I'm going to bring many language and I'm going to confuse them. They're going to sound like they're babbling. 
And that's what he does. He confuses their language, and many like, languages come out of this. They erupt, and people begin to congregate with people that speak the same language, and they scatter to the far reaches of the planet. But if you jump ahead several thousand years, you go into Acts chapter 2, the people of the earth, as it's stated here in this passage, represented by these 15 nations listed in verses 9 through 11, come together on this day of harvest. And together in one common language, they hear the mighty works of God. This is a really neat moment, you guys. This is literally Jesus restoring all things, like bringing it back. To put it another way, as one, as one people, they begin to hear the greatness of the name of God instead of trying to make a name for themselves. And so they're brought together, and this curse is reversed in the shadow of what? What's this curse reversed in the shadow? Like, don't miss this. How is the curse on the day of Pentecost reversed? You can't have Pentecost without what? Passover. Jesus reversed the curse. Jesus brought all of those that could not come together on their own, back together, under the power of his spirit. And so you can't have the harvest of these first fruits without, as Jesus states, a seed dying and being placed in the ground, right? So you see the reverse of the curse, this curse that's on all of us when we're all scattered, we're confused, we're babbling, we're trying to make a name for ourselves. I mean, if that isn't descriptive for the world that we live in now, I don't know what is, but God brings us all together in the shadow of what? Passover. And this harvest that we're going to read about next week of 3,000 actually propel it forward 2,000 years into the days we're living in now, and this harvest is getting more grand and more grand and bigger and bigger, and it's all about bringing people together. We come together because of the Passover of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He says, in him we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Is that not amazing? That's the work that the Spirit starts in Acts 2. The gospel message of Jesus begins to fan that flame like no other time before. I'm going to ask the, the worship team to come up. Um, read these last two verses in this passage. Acts 2, verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? W would you say that? <laughs> what in the world is going on here? But others mocked. So there were some that were asking, what does it mean? There were some that were like, didn't get it, but they're like leaning into it, right? There's some that don't understand it, but they're like, 
I want some understanding. I want to know what it means. Then there's the mockers. And the mockers say they're filled with new wine. Like, they're all drunk. And as I was thinking about this this week, I was just thinking about the fact that just because the Spirit leads in our life does not mean that everybody will get it at the same time, in the same place, in the same way. And as followers of Jesus, we live in this day and age where I, in my lifetime, I don't know if there's been another season where to actually sell out to Jesus and live your life for him makes you stick out like a sore thumb like no other time before in history. Like, it's going against the grain like no other. And I was telling our staff the other day, like, what breaks my heart is to watch the church begin to try to look like everybody else. So if there's all the mockers that are like, they're just drunk, you know, the church is like, yeah, (laughs) they're just drunk. Or are we the ones that stand with Jesus on this by his spirit, realizing we're going to go against the grain, we're going to go against the flow, we are going to be like light in the darkness. But it's by the spirit and the work that he has done in us and through us that that light shines so vibrantly that in not, you don't just stick out like a sore thumb. There's actually something very appealing to the world in you as that light shines. That Jesus is actually drawing people to himself. I mean, think about this, this message that Peter's going to preach next week that we're going to get into, where he's literally going to stand up in front of all these people and say, repent. You're the one who crucified Jesus. All, you're the one, you're the reason this dude died. The one, the savior of the world. Like the reason he died is because you crucified him. And he's going to call these people out and 3,000 of them are going to repent and be baptized and turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. Talk about sticking out like a sore thumb. Anybody want that job? <laughs> Not I. We're going to end this morning by taking communion. And I thought, like, what, what an amazing opportunity we get this morning as we realize that there would be no Pentecost without Passover. And we sort of need to start there, right? We don't just rush straight to, like, give me the gift of tongues. It's like, I actually want to bask in the greatness and the glory of God and remember what it was that Jesus did for me in Jesus Whatever you have for me, I'll take. Like, bring it on, Lord. Give me the gifts that you want to bestow upon me. But Anthem, if I can challenge you with one thing today, it's that I seriously pray for those of you that have sold your lives out to Jesus Christ, that you live these lives of boldness and proclamation. That you worship Jesus in all situations and that you're bold by the spirit to say and do the things that the spirit is asking of you to witness to those that nobody else will to take that step that nobody else will take i mean we talk about the spirit-led life if we're actually going to live into it then we're going to listen as he leads and do as he asks us to do the amazing part about this is that we don't do it in our own strength Like, the reason he gave us his spirit is that we do these things 
in tandem with his spirit that resides within us. So this morning, as, as we spend some time worshiping at the end here, and you can come forward and take communion whenever you feel led, might I remind you of why we take communion? That at the Passover, Jesus' last Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it and he says to them, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And so as we come forward to take communion this morning, protect your hearts from just coming forward to do a religious act this morning and take a second and absorb it all like what it is that Jesus did for you and in light of what he did for you what is it he's continuing to do for you through his spirit that's what we get to celebrate today because of his sacrifice his body broken his blood shed we get to live these spirit-empowered lives because the spirit wouldn't be here if Jesus was standing in our midst. He left to provide his spirit to us. And so I want to pray for you, if you guys would stand with me. Um, as we worship and take communion to close the service here, uh, we're trying something new. There's a sweet little rug off to my left here. You're right. And we had somebody literally ask, like, sometimes I just want to kneel and I just want to worship Jesus. Would the church consider getting a rug? We're like, yes. We got the rug. So if you want to worship Jesus and you want to kneel, feel free to kneel. But let's use this time to remember what Jesus did for us, to partake communion, and to proclaim his goodness and his faithfulness in worship this morning. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that we get to partake in this gift this morning of your bloodshed and your body broken for us. I pray, Jesus, as we do this, that you would protect us from religious actions, God, that our hearts, our minds be reminded this morning of who's actually in control, who sits on the throne, who paid the ultimate price so that our hearts could be saved, so that we could be granted eternity with you, Jesus. And so I pray this morning that there be significance and depth, and our time and communion would just be an amazing, sweet time to spend with Jesus this morning to remember what you did for us, as well as, God, I know that there's those in this room that have never turned their hearts over to you. They've never surrendered their lives to you, professed you as Lord and Savior of their life. And what an amazing opportunity they get this morning to be reminded that you did shed your blood and your body was broken on that cross for the deliverance of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus, you didn't stay on that cross. You actually resurrected. And you say that the same resurrection life that was breathed into Jesus, that raised him from the dead, you've actually placed within each of us. And we get to walk in that this morning. And I'm just grateful, Lord. So bless your church and be with us even as we worship here to close out the service. May our hearts be given to you, Jesus, in all that we do in Jesus' name. Amen.